Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Please note that some listeners may find the content of this show upsetting. Due to the often sensitive nature of discussion, this show is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. So welcome to Justice and this week we are live in Leeds at the Cloth Hall and I'm really excited because we are um, hosting our first trauma conference and it's something I've wanted to do for a couple of years but the team has always been too small and now we're doing it. The One Small Thing podcast team is with me. I'm very honoured to have them with me in Leeds and they are going to be going round the conference for the next sort of day and a half, really capturing stories, um, allowing people to tell us really what they think of it and why it's actually important to them and their work. So we've got about 150 people here at the conference and they come from police, probation, prisons. There's quite a few prison officers in there, uh, which I'm happy to say. And we've got people from private companies. We've got people from drug and alcohol sort of backgrounds rape crisis domestic violence mental health so there's a really broad spectrum of people who've come together which I have to say I always I personally if I go to a conference or any training event it's you get much more from the day when there's people represented from the different organizations because you know more interesting conversations come up more interesting questions asked and people can actually learn from different sort of angles and from different viewpoints even though we're all talking about the one topic of trauma. As part of the podcast team, this is Jenny Dyson and I'm sitting in the bobbin room in the Cloth Hall in Leeds with Dr Stephanie Covington. Hi Stephanie. Hi, how are you? Very nice to see you again. Good the last time that we spoke was when I was making a film for the One Small Thing website right. and about film which you star in <laughs> alongside Edwina. So for those of you who've visited the One Small Thing website, you'll be able to see Stephanie. Um, but Stephanie, just if you could introduce yourself in a little bit more detail and just tell us, tell the listeners what you've been doing today. I think it's always complicated how to introduce oneself. I guess there are multiple things that I do in terms of um, writing and speaking and consulting. And particularly here in the UK, working with Edwina, the focus has been on the criminal justice system and trying to see how we could help move people in the direction of being more trauma-informed and responsive and to bring trauma-specific services in. For We started with the women, the women's estate, and now moving into the 
some of the men's facilities. Yeah, yeah, because when I think we met last May and it was, I think it were only women prisons that were yes. involved in the training program. Well, and what happened is the long-term high security estate decided that this really made sense to them. And so that's the next pl- place we're moving. And that's so for that's the male been, prison. That's male. I think there's 16 or 17 prisons in that group. So this morning, the, the topic was the basics of being trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not asking you to go and explain the whole thing now, but what's the main thing that's missing from the criminal justice system in the UK then, do you think? Well, I think if we look specifically at trauma, I don't, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that most of the people in the system have a trauma history. I think what's been missing is taking that information and using it to understand how to better serve people and how to make a difference. And so while the language of the terminologies I talked about this morning, trauma-informed, really resonates with people, many of them don't understand that being trauma-informed means having knowledge and information. But the next step is to be trauma-responsive, which means you change what you do, your policies and your practices, because now you have the information. And that becomes the barrier, is we're talking about organizational change. Now, I don't know any organization that changes easily, but the criminal justice system is one of the most difficult to change. Is that partly because, you know, there is a sense, and certainly in the outside world, that once you're in prison, that's it, you get forgotten about, like, they kind of stop existing in a way. It's the invisibility. Um, I think the public, both here and in the States, have this idea that once you're there, oh, well, not realizing the majority of people come out of prison and the majority of them come out in worse shape than they went in. And it would seem to me those of us who are living in the free world and in community would want people to come out in better shape than they went in, not worse. But people are short-sighted. You know, prisons have a very strange history. They were initially developed as places to punish people. And in today's world, I can go into any prison and ask staff, okay, what do you think the point is here? What are we supposed to be doing? And about half the staff usually say punish, but the other half say no to help people. But that doesn't mean that's the part of the staff that has the biggest voice. The other thing about prisons is what happens inside is very much determined by who, in your case, the governor, what we call the wardens, they have a lot of say in how a prison runs, what they consider their prison. Right. So that makes a difference. So are those people, those individuals, very much a target audience for being able to persuade them or not have to persuade them, but just to inform them about? Yeah, we, we try in the training that we do and the process we've been using in the Ministry of Justice to certainly have the governors, at least at initial meetings, to get the information and to try to encourage them to see things differently and to move things forward. What kind of evidence is there as a result of all this? Obviously now we we know that that the work that's being funded by One Small Thing, your training programs, has now spread across many, many prisons in the UK. Um, but beyond that, are there any individual case studies or are there any, is there any anecdotal evidence that you can share that's, that really can show that, it's, that it works? Well, we have a combination of things. The, the only research project so far in the UK has been a small pilot study that was done in the women's facilities, um, and that was using a particular intervention. In the States, we have a lot more research on what's been happening. In terms of actual organizational cultural change, there's one particular women's prison in the States where, in fact, they really tracked a whole variety of measures having to do with suicide rates and um, 
need for special mental health and uh, aggressive behavior and a whole variety of things and found that, in fact, all of the things that you don't want to have happen in prison all decreased in a period of a year and a half by making changes in how they were operating. Organizational so things like self-harm, which are Self-harm. Really, oh, yeah. Really self-harm, high. suicide attempts. All those things decreased. So we have that information from the states. We don't have that yet here in the UK. And part of it is really challenging to get research dollars. Yeah, It's amazing. Everywhere. Everyone wants it to be evidence-based, but nobody wants to pay for the research. So that becomes challenging. And we have a lot, a lot of anecdotal evidence, uh, stories from men, from women, from staff, as to what a difference it has made. Is there anything that stands out that you could share? We've got three incredible success stories um, in California. These are three women because we train the women to facilitate. So these are three women. One had a sentence of maybe six years. One was in 16 and a half years. One was in 18 years. All three of them involved in crimes where life was lost. Serious. They're released And they're released in the part of California where I have a colleague that runs a program. So I called her and said, you know, I know you're using my material. I know you're always looking for good facilitators. I know three women who've had a lot of experience. Would you consider hiring someone who's been released from prison? She said, I'll interview them. I said, great. They all have good jobs. They've been out about a year and a half. Their uh, parole officer is just... They're his stars. So here are three women who, and this is a piece we never anticipated, that by being facilitators in the prison, they actually developed a job skill. And what my colleague tells me, these are the best facilitators I've ever hired. Isn't that an amazing story? And these are not women with graduate education. You know, these aren't, these are women who learn the skills there and have changed their lives. You know, we have a lot of stories good stories. It's overwhelming at times, but there's always something we can do. And that's why I love Edwina's one small thing. It's a lot of these one small things that make a difference. Well, so we're coming up to the lunch break. And so far, we've really had um, Dr. Stephanie Covington giving us the overview of trauma. And she starts off with trauma and violence on the global stage really and then she sort of brings it back down and really then focuses in on you the individual and the experiences that you might have been through how you look after yourself and mitigate against any things that might be triggering for you in your workplace and then also talks about the people that we all might be looking after in our in our everyday life this afternoon it's more workshops so people will break off and there'll be a workshop on mental health. There'll be a workshop on running these interventions in a community setting. We've got someone from the police talking about all of this in a policing context. We have a gong bath, which uh, I'd like to be able to tell you more about, but I'm not quite sure yet, but I'll report back after I've had my gong bath. And what else do we have? Yoga, nutrition, beauty products, uh, a big emphasis on how we look after ourselves and actually why You shouldn't feel guilty about that. It's actually a really crucial part of being able to do your job well and to be able to do it safely. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. So we've come into the denim room in the cloth hall and we have found a certain individual sitting with his legs crossed in front of a very large gong. Um, please, can you introduce yourself and tell us what you're doing? Leo. Well, today and tomorrow, I shall be holding meditations through the medium of sound. So instead of the usual spoken word and silence, I will be going against the stream and take away the quietness and fill up the room with sound to help people, I guess, access a state of mind, maybe altered states, feelings, sensations that normally they perhaps wouldn't be able to. And I've been doing that for quite a while now, just under 10 years. And it really helps people. It's helped me, first and foremost. That's why I'm still doing it, because it's helped me so much. And I want to share it with the world. Standing behind me, we have a 38-inch symphonic gong, which you'd normally expect to see at the very far back of the stage at a symphonic concert, classical music concert, made in Germany, but originally from Switzerland, where I am from myself. And we have a very large stand that can hold it up, which was very heavy to carry on the train. It was quite a journey, but we got here in the end. And what else do we have? We've got different mallets, friction mallets, heavy mallets, light mallets to create different sounds. That's kind of the idea. 
I guess is to create different soundscapes, create different tones and textures, so that people kind of lose themselves into the sound. So in terms of being able to heal and possibly unlock trauma, going to a sound bath is something that can be hugely transformative. Some people might find that quite scary. What's your advice to people who might be quite frightened by the idea of feelings coming to the surface that you're not necessarily going to be expecting because it can trigger all kinds of different emotions and you don't know what the response is going to be and so it would be really helpful to know a bit about what you recommend to people who who might want to explore this as a form of healing well first of all you're always allowed to leave (laughs) so you could leave but it's quite rare to get to that stage where you feel like it's unbearable and you have to leave However, it, it is true that it's not just a back rub. You're not just here to relax. You're here to get into altered states, get out of your head. And that isn't always about comfort and being in a situation of pleasantness. Sometimes, you know, I think traveling inwards and outwards to other countries can feel uncomfortable. And that's where a lot of the change happens for us human beings. And I think the animal kingdom as well. So for those of us who feel, I guess, concerned about what can happen during a gong bath, I'd just say it's super safe. And, you know, you're not taking anything. It's not like plant medicine or taking substances. It's literally listening to sound, which is something we've been doing since the beginning of time, really. We've used sound as a way of self-entrainment before we used it for entertainment, actually. So sound is a language also. It's a universal language. And yeah, it doesn't need translation. And just maybe to to finish on on this idea that it can bring things up to the surface, it tends to do that, but that's a gift. So I always say to people, if you feel like things are coming up, better out than in. And don't believe everything that you think. (laughs) For me, that's a big one because we create monsters in the mind, but actually when we face things, they're actually really tiny and quite just irrational the mind is irrational so there you go trust in the process so in our prison system in this country some prisoners will have television some don't some might have broken them some will be in solitary confinements and it's always struck me when we're thinking of ways to help people within the system in a sort of cost-effective way that could be quite universal that this would be a brilliant thing for people to listen to to try and relax um, if they've had a difficult day and most days in prison are very difficult Um, so we probably won't fix this problem now but do you see this as something that could be beneficial to people who are locked up in our prisons? The answer is, is yes, and for many reasons. I'd say the first, the first one, the most important one is this sound doesn't have a face, it doesn't have a gender, it doesn't have any identity really. That's that's what I find amazing, and I, and I can see that in the attendance when I do workshops all over the world. It's, I get everybody. I get people who are deaf. I get people in wheelchairs. People who can't do yoga because obviously we know yoga is very popular. And I know it helps in, in prisons. I'm, I'm sure they do yoga there. But sound, as I said, is universal. It touches everybody. And even if you can't hear it, if you're deaf, you can still feel it. And because it's not, um, in, you know, it's not intertwined within a certain genre of music, it's very likely that, and I've observed that in my classes, everybody's very open to it. 
because it's I don't know it's it's its own thing and it's nobody's heard that sound before so it just kind of captures your attention in a way that no other sound does for me it's like life has become so stressful that we are accessing those old instruments to cope with the stress because I think that mindfulness is useful but I think when you're extremely stressed in a situation of distress silence and the spoken word just just can't really help that much I think a lot of the problems in this world are created through stress and words actually and it's hard to solve something with the same with the source of that problem I think you have to go beyond that and I think sound just helps so many people it would be quite incredible to be able to facilitate that yes so maybe that's where we should go next with the prison service, get the gong baths in. I mean, you know, on a practical level, as I said, everyone talks about there aren't enough staff, right? So there's not enough people on the ground to be able to do a lot of these things. You know, there's not enough money. And it strikes me that this would be quite a cost-effective, easy way to get people relaxing. So watch this space. So a big part of the conference is really homing in on self-care, which might sound a bit wishy-washy and like you've got two days out of the office to kind of do a bit of yoga and lie on a mat and have a gong bath. But actually, when you get that, you push the giggles to one side about all of that. If you're not looking after yourself, how are you ever going to be in a good position to be able to look after others? And then when you take that to an its extreme example, which is probably working in pretty violent prisons, you have to be quite resilient and you have to be quite robust. So really the the emphasis on self-care at this conference is totally crucial. And it's allowing people to get out of their sort of, you know, usual day job. So it's day two of the One Small Thing conference. And I'm standing in the lunch queue with a gentleman who has just been in the sound bath workshop would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about your experience so far? My name's uh, Andrew Butterfield. I'm uh, an officer at HMP Newhall. I am interim trauma lead and I'm here just to catch up really with all the work that uh, we've been doing. I've just been in the, the soundbar, first time I've uh, experienced anything like that and it's just something new that I'd, I'd like to see how we could maybe take that and apply it within prisons, see if we can use it to encourage some more mindfulness work within prisons and uh, take the opportunity to learn as much as we can from this conference and use it to help the, the, the women that we work with. Brilliant. Were you listening to Karen's workshop this morning? Uh, this, uh, this morning, yes, we were learning to the, uh, the organisational uh, structures now, how trauma can af- affect the staff, so it's all about the self-care side, and I think that's a really important part that we miss, particularly within uh, the prison system. We focus a lot on outcomes and but less on the well-being for me the well-being of the uh, the staff that work in there we need more staff aware of what we do within like this this uh, the, the trauma world for want of a better word uh, and I, I think it, it could open a few more eyes and a few more ideas to you know how we work and how we can help and support both ourselves our colleagues and uh, the women that are under our care so you believe there's room for mindfulness in, in prisons? I think there's room for mindfulness within prisons for both the staff and the women that we're working with. Uh, I think it's a, it's a massive untapped resource that we could uh, possibly look at. 
Well, lovely chatting to you. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome very much. Thank you. So, in the room we have Karen Traceman, who's just finished doing her first or second workshop of the day. Second workshop second. of the day, so yes. Second. So are you feeling just a little bit exhausted? I am feeling a bit exhausted, but nice to speak to you as well. <laughs> Can you just tell our listeners what you do and why you're part of this conference today? So I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I specialise in working clinically with people who have experienced relational and developmental trauma, so predominantly um, domestic violence, neglect, sexual abuse, lots of young people and their carers, uh, foster carers, adoptive parents, um, unaccompanied asylum-seeking young people, and I'm also an organisational consultant to over 90 different organisations around becoming more trauma-informed and trauma-responsive. So I guess the reason I'm here today is to talk a little bit about making systems more trauma-informed, trauma-responsive, but also about bringing the element about your own self-care and emotional well-being, which is a central tenant of trauma-responsive care. I just spoke to someone who works in the police force in Hampshire and he was saying what an amazing day it's been because being trauma-informed is not really discussed in the police Mm. force. And he was very inspired by it and excited by the idea of being able to create positive change. Mm. So there's there's clearly a huge amount of, of excitement and enthusiasm for learning and understanding this you know, how to be trauma informed. I don't know if you can give us some kind of case study where you can tell us a story about an individual and what a difference using trauma informed training made to that person. So I suppose organisationally, I'll give you a couple of mm-hmm. examples, then I'll Great. give you a couple of, of individual. Great. So for example, um, one of the local authority social services that I'm working within, which is probably one of the most traumatised systems that you can function and work in. Um, I've been working with them on lots of different levels from training about understanding trauma, secondary trauma, how to make organisations trauma informed, all the way through to looking at their physical environment, looking at training their um, admin and business support, through to looking at their policies, for example, how they do removing a child if that needs to be done in Mm -hmm. a more trauma-informed way. Supervision, how do you make supervision more trauma-informed? What language do they use? Um, How do they talk about people? So really looking across the whole fabric of the Mm. organisation. Some of the changes that they've seen is kind of measurable, more empathy, more compassion, more seeing people as people, so seeing mm-hmm. the person behind the behaviour and behind the label. They've seen better staff retention, more staff satisfaction, less staff sickness. They've seen less difficulties in staff and parent interactions. Um, they've seen uh, lots more team cohesion and team spirit. Yeah, that's enough. I could go on and on, but those are some of the sort of organisational yeah. ones. From a young person, it's difficult because... Every young person I work with is in a trauma-informed way because that's my specialty area. Um, But I suppose, um, for example, a young person I'm working at the moment has had 73 foster placements. Yeah. 73? 73. And how old is the child? 15. So huge, huge amounts. That's so shocking. Absolutely. Talk about institutional trauma. Right. Um, And I think... He had been positioned, his words, not mine, as a monster and sort of will end up in prison and that very deterministic. So he would say the difference of me working with him in a trauma-informed way was that I truly 
saw him as a person. Mm. I saw that what's happened to him. Um, I also found ways to hold hope. And I think that yeah. was something that was hugely lost, that sense of hope and to truly see his sort of skills and survivorship. Um, but also because trauma is such a multi-sensory experience, mm. it has a multi-sensory impact. So lots of the work we've been doing has been so much more than words. We've been working creatively, mm. using the physical body, using yoga, using mindfulness, using art, using clay, using all different things. And I mm. think he would say he sort of felt um, that he's processed his trauma in a way that's been quite visceral and sensory. Thank you, Karen, for your time. Pleasure. Lovely Thank chatting you. to you. Okay, so we're standing at the bar and we've bumped into a certain Nick Plummer. Nick's going to tell us a little bit about why he's here and what he does. Okay, um, I'm a Detective Chief Inspector for the police and we are just starting to explore how policing can learn from trauma-informed methodology. Earlier today, you were talking with Edwina and you were saying how it, you know, it's this kind of trauma-informed training and awareness is not something that's been particularly part of the, the, the language of the police. Is, is that right or what would you say in your own words? So I've been a police officer for 27 years now and I think you, you go through a journey of understanding kind of how you deal with situations, whether that be investigating a crime or responding to a, an emergency. Um, and what I kind of now think, looking back, is what happens when I walk away from that environment? What do I leave behind? So, for example, if I went to a, um, a violent domestic incident um, and ultimately maybe the father gets arrested from that place and we leave with the father and the child is upstairs in their bedroom and they've heard the argument in the first instance then they've heard maybe they've even called the police themselves because they're worried about mum or and then we turn up and we take dad away and I'm kind of trying to start to understand how we might want to kind of adapt our response to kind of not increase or change the or, or make the trauma worse for that child um and also kind of how that mum talks to the child once we leave. So it's really complicated, but it's not always the sledgehammer cracks the walnut. It's kind of um, what else can we, what do we leave behind when we, when we go? And how can we help the kind of rest of the recovery from that process afterwards? So all of this, um, and, and the other bit from today, I think, is about the organisational learning. So that you can't just train people to do what I've just explained. You need to, it needs to become part of the culture of the organisation. So they kind of... They get that, they, they understand what impact they have when they're responding to an incident. Um, and maybe they, even they talk about that to their friends and colleagues so they can kind of share that learning and it becomes ingrained in the organisation. That's a key part for me from today. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. So Edwina has now entered the bobbin room, which is our little green room where all of our laptops and the recording setup is. So where have you just been? So I've just come out of the workshop that was being run by an officer in the Met Police and he runs um, a sort of organisation called Divert. And it was really interesting. It's sort of working with kids that come into police custody. And the big takeaway for me was talking about and thinking about the police custody suite as a point in time that could be used for something positive. Right. So instead of 
right, I've got this child here, it's all about to go downhill. How can the officers get around that child, teenager, and actually kind of, as he said, um, harass them with opportunity? So it's like, let's not concentrate (laughs) on the past. What are you good at? Well, selling drugs, actually. Right, so you're good at selling. So let's think about the opportunities there. And then what they do is they link those kids up with, if they're not going to prison, they link them up with organisations that can further help them on their path um, and set them on a different trajectory. I've just accosted Jack Rowlands, who is the founder of Divert. He is here in the capacity of speaker and attendant you've been to some of the other workshops am i right yeah not the other workshops but uh, karen treesman and stephanie covington's talks been there so really 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 important really impactful i'm feeling very thoughtful over the next couple of days i think my train journey home will give me a lot of food for thought for definite definitely brilliant um just tell us about divert and tell us about the the workshop that you run so Divert is a police custody intervention programme. So we're based in six custody suites across London. So we have trained custody intervention coaches that speak to young adults that come into police custody. And we talk to them predominantly around, and we listen to them predominantly around what's going on in their lives with the aim of getting them into employment education training. But we've been running Divert for four years now. And what we're really understanding is the levels of trauma and the levels of stuff that's going on in young people's lives that, doesn't mean I condone the reasons why they're in custody, but I understand why. And for me, what's resonated with me over the last couple of days is that for for the 320 people that we've spoken to just in the last four months, I would guarantee that every single one of them has presented some element of trauma. And I think the overall message for me is about saying that the young people that come into custody can't be tagged as bad people, as offenders and criminals they are young people that have been arrested on suspicion of an offence and I think the reason why we're effective is because we've got some really great people working with us that understand that if that young person is is ready to go if that young person needs support we can get it to them straight away and collaboration and all the values that we've been speaking about last couple of days really resonated with me because the empowerment side the trustworthiness the safety the uh, collaboration uh, is really really part of what we do Um, so for me, I think it's about bolting on that, that culture within a police custody suite where cops and, and other colleagues go, we get this. And, and this isn't about undermining our hard work. It's about stopping people from getting themselves involved in crime, but also helping them as well. OK, and yesterday I overheard the, the phrase that you were using, which is harass them with opportunity, mm-hmm. which I love. It's just such a brilliant use of language. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that a little bit more? The, the line came from when I used to work in Brixton as a, as a safe enabled sergeant. I was getting young people to jobs fairs and I was, I was trying to get this young person to attend and he basically in front of his mum just, just shouted, stop harassing me with your opportunities. And what he didn't realise is it just became a complete mantra of ours around divert. So, so for me, overall we've got 180 people into employment education training, but the standout ones for me are we've got, we got a guy who was really, really high up on the, the the gang's matrix in in Hackney, really violent. Um, someone that f- failed a couple of times, and we picked him back up. Got arrested a couple of times. I think for me, it was the fact that we're still here. If you're still here, we're still here. We're we're going to keep bolting on what you need. So you need a suit, right? Well, T M Lewin. You need you need interview course, Uvenus. Don't you realise we are bolting on people around you that are stopping you from going down that path? 
And I think for me, what happens now is he's now working as a full-time patent decorator. He's not on drugs anymore. He is not offending anymore. And the testimonies we've got from the gangs units and people in, in, in the Met is like, I would never have thought in a million years you'd have been able to do that for him because we just thought he was far gone. And it's, it's those stories that have been replicated hundreds of times now that just make me realise that not only does this work, but it's something that means that if we, if we... And I wouldn't necessarily publicly say we harass people with opportunities, but if you can give everyone that tailored package where, OK, you need employment, but you need therapy. You also need drug and alcohol addiction services. It, it's a case of, right, let's bolt this on here, bolt this on there. We're not going to let you get out of here without that support around you. And most of all, it's the relationship between custody intervention coach and that young person. Sounds brilliant. Thank you so much. Okay, so it's almost the end of day two of of the conference and Edwina's here to tell us how it's been. It's gone really well. It's been really well organised and I'm not blowing my own trumpet. The events team have been totally fantastic. Um, For me, I was reflecting a lot on one small thing and my organisation and me as a leader and thinking how nice it was last night, for example, sitting at the bar and being able to have a glass of wine and just laugh and talk about stuff and hang out as a team and not necessarily be running from A to B. You know, again, all these conversations we've had about self-care and having time to enjoy life and talk to each other and have a laugh. So that's been really important. I've really enjoyed being around people from so many different organisations. I think there's real power in bringing people together from different places. Um, some people have said, you know, when you're at a prison event, it's all prison people. So you get a one dimensional view of a problem. Um, it can be quite difficult to ask some slightly challenging questions because there might be people in the room who are your boss or, you know, difficult things like that. So it allows other people to say things that doesn't maybe make you feel so um, uncomfortable. So we're going to get together as a team and see whether um, we're going to do another one next year. But yeah, certainly so far, I've I've had a brilliant time as well and I've learned a lot. That's always important. Great. And I think on behalf of your podcast team, we have too. We've had an amazing time. It's been fantastic. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Justice. If you found it interesting... You can discover more about the work we do within the justice system by visiting our website, onesmallthing.org.uk. One Small Thing is a charitable organisation striving for positive change in the justice system. If you would like to subscribe to Justice, you can do so via your usual podcast platform. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.